Luke 11, verses 5 to 13. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me. And he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. Hello. Hello, everyone. Good morning. Those of you who don't know me, my name is Eric Underwater. I am not a minister or a pastor yet. I am a student at the Canadian Reformed Seminary in Hamilton here. And I'm here as an intern this summer working with Paul to learn how to become a pastor. So with that, thank you for reading the word. And uh, we'll get started. This is a passage about prayer. And I think one of the things that we've started first with here at Grace Valley is prayer. We have four prayer groups in planning here at, at Grace Valley. And for a church of 70 members, that's a lot. We have a men's prayer group at 6.30 a.m. on Wednesdays, a women's prayer group at 9.30 on Wednesdays, a co-ed prayer group once a month on weekdays, and in the future, we're planning a weeknight women's group. That's an incredible amount of time and energy to put into prayer for such a small church, especially so early. And first of all, this is great. I love it. But I think the question that I want to ask all of you here today, and the question that this sermon is going to address, is this. Is four groups prayer groups really necessary? Is this really worth it? Should we be doing something else with our time? This is a difficult question. Because a lot of Christians look at prayer and they say, yes, of course we're supposed to pray. Prayer is part of the life of a Christian. Jesus says we should pray. He even teaches us how to pray. But I think a lot of Christians, they understand that, but the next question is a little harder to answer. And that's the question of, What's the benefit of prayer? Does prayer really work? Does it change anything? Does God really listen to us when we pray? Does he take what we ask of him and provide something? And this is a much more difficult question, a question that a lot of us, and myself included, struggle with at times, especially when things really go wrong. 
And we pray and we pray. And through named uh, Craig Groeschel, I think that's how you say his name, he runs through a book called, titled The Christian Atheist. And chapter four of this book is titled when, when You Believe in Prayer, or sorry, When You Believe in God But Not in Prayer. And I think he's really hitting it right there. And he says this in, the cha- in his uh, chapter. He says this, Many Christians claim to believe prayer works, but their actions say otherwise. Some Christians rarely pray, and when they do, they don't expect anything to change. And I think that kind of sums it up. Me too. I don't think I'm the only one here who's saying, yeah, sometimes I wonder if my prayers work. And in our passage today, Luke 11, verses 5 through 15, or 5 through 13, Jesus is getting at this exact question. He's, he's reaching this issue. Because in the previous passage, he just taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer. He taught them what to pray and how to pray. And that's all great. We understand that. But now Jesus is getting at something different. He's saying, I taught you what to pray, but now I'm going to tell you why you should pray and why your prayers matter. That's the, what this passage today is about. And that's why in his answer for all of this, his big idea is he says, you should pray to God and your prayers matter because God is your father. It's a bit of an unusual answer. It's not the answer we would first expect. This is my theme today, and I'm going to develop it as we go along. The theme today is God is our father, and that makes all the difference when we pray. That's why our prayers matter. And we'll get to, we'll get to why. So, let's start with a little bit of background. Remember, when Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11... He teaches them to start their prayer by addressing God as their Father. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Father. And at first you think, oh, well, of course. That makes perfect sense. God's our Father. But what Jesus is doing is actually something quite revolutionary. Because in the Old Testament, people did not usually address God as Father. God's name was Yahweh, which means I am what I am. And if people didn't call God by that name, they called him Lord. God is Lord. And in Jesus' time, the Jews didn't even dare say Yahweh, the name that God gave to them. They considered it way too holy. How could we ever call God by his real name? This is impossible. Instead, they called God Lord. And when they saw it in the scriptures, they would, see, they would skip over God's real name, how magnificent they thought God was. And now Jesus says, oh, no, you can call God Father. You should, you should do that. This is, this, is, this is unusual. Right? And I want to get to the full implications of this. Think about the difference between the Lord-subject relationship and the father-child relationship. There's actually a huge difference. Right? The Lord-subject relationship is based on power and authority. I am more powerful than you. You will listen. That's how we obey our rulers. The father-child relationship is not and shouldn't be based on that. The father-child relationship is a love relationship, right? It's based on mutual love. And there's, some, there's authority there too, but love is really what makes that relationship work. When, when you give a child, your wife gives birth to a child as a father, you love it instantly. It's amazing, really. It's a miracle. So Jesus is saying God is our father. And in 1 John 3 verse 1, it says, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. 
right? He loves us. And think about the good dads that you know. A good dad cherishes his children as if they're the greatest thing in the world. They shower them with love, care, and attention. Good dads love their children so much that they're willing to forgive them no matter how bad their children are. And sometimes forgiveness doesn't come quickly, but it generally will. Right? Good dads delight in showering gifts and blessings upon us. They delight in our joy and they mourn with us when we mourn. They're with us. They follow us. When we fall off our bikes, a good dad will pick us up and bandage our wounds. When our first relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend doesn't work out, a good dad will be there to comfort us. That's what they do. A good dad also recognizes that his love needs to be exercised with a certain measure of responsibility. And he knows that in order to truly love his children, he has to teach them. Correct their faults, and that there are times when he can't give his children things that they want. A good dad knows what's best for his children, and out of love, he will do everything in his power to help his children succeed. That's what dads do. And more than anything else, the best dads desire a healthy relationship with their children. They want to be with their children. They want to listen to them. That's what God is like. Except he's better. He's better than the best we can imagine. He's the players down in our souls. Although at this point, I have to say, I know that some of you didn't have good dads. It's hard for you to see God as a father. It's very real for you. Your father's failed you or hurt you or ignored you or worse. And I recently read an article from someone who struggled with this. And he said this. He said, and he struggled this whole life with his dad. And he said, instead of looking at my dad and back at God, I learned to look at God first. If I didn't start with God, then he would always be the replica rather than the original. And I think that's the, as hard as that is. And I don't want to make this sound easy, but as hard as that is, that's what we have to do. The solution to a bad dad is not no dad. It's a better dad. And that's key to understanding this passage too. When Jesus says that God's our father, he's saying our, his father is like our fathers, but better. He's better than our fathers, better than even the best human fathers. He's a perfect father, perfectly loving, perfectly gracious, perfectly just, and perfectly forgiving. We can't even imagine what that's like. We don't even know. We only see a glimmer in this sinful life. Where our fathers failed, where we fail as fathers, God is perfect and better in every single way. He's faithful in all the ways our fathers aren't. And now that we understand the fatherhood of God, this passage will make sense. So let's look at our passage again. Let's go back to our text. And our text starts with a parable that illustrates a principle. Okay? Let's, read the, let's start reading the first parable. We'll start at verse 5. If you have a, it's in your bulletin if you are willing to look. The parable starts like this. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Huh. First question. Why would a traveler stop at midnight? Try to figure this out. Well, in the Middle East, it is very hot during the day. 
And at that time, many people would travel at night when it was cool. The Magi, for example, traveled at night. That's how they could follow the star. This was quite normal at the time. So the traveler comes to a friend's house to stay. And second question, why would the owner of the house suddenly need to find bread just because somebody showed up? It's kind of strange. Why couldn't this person just wait until the morning? Wouldn't that seem like the natural thing to do? Hey, the practice of hospitality is nearly sacred. One author I read on the internet, take this with whatever that comes with, said he knows of, he knows of numerous stories of families in the Middle East today that have sold their last possessions just to feed their guests. This is still a modern custom. The hospitality is a huge thing. It's hard for us to understand. So, this person, this friend, someone comes to his house and he has to feed him. This personal honor depends on him. This is a need. This will come out again later, why this is so important. So let's go back to the story of verse 7. Then he, his neighbor, will answer from the inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have already gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Let's notice this. The neighbor doesn't want to help. It's midnight, first of all. And there's a real cost to helping. He's going to wake up his children. Now, I don't know about you, but I got three young children at home, and there is very little that would make me wake up my children. That's just, no. But, but, back to the parable. Jesus continues. He says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. What is Jesus saying here? What does that mean? What's, what's the lesson here? What's the point? Well, first, the point is not that the friend who needed bread should be persistent. Many people who read this passage will say this is all about persistence. But the parable is not about persistence. The friend isn't persistent at all. All he does is ask. The lesson is that the neighbor got out of bed and gave the friend his bread just because his friend asked. That's it. He gave him the bread simply because his friend came over and asked him the question. Okay, what does this have to do with prayer? Does this have anything to do with prayer? At first, it doesn't really seem so. But Jesus is, is saying something profound about prayer, very profound, and it has everything to do with fatherhood. Jesus is using contrast to make a point. He's saying that if even that neighbor in that situation who did not want to get out of bed, if even a sinful human neighbor gets up to help his friends, how much more would a loving father in heaven get up to help you if you ask him for something? This is, Jesus is not saying, if you ask God for something, he'll just give it to you. No, no, he's saying something much deeper. He's saying, if even us sinful people give each other what we need when, when they ask, how much more our loving God, who's perfect? Why would we pray to a God and expect him not to answer us or to listen to us when we are so willing, even as sinful people, to answer each other's requests? Right? And so this is the lesson, and Jesus uses the lesson to get to his point, which is the principle. And the principle is found in the next verses, in verse 9. 
right? So the parable illustrates the principle. Principle is this. So I say to you, and Jesus, this is a therefore. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Again, the principle, if we sinful people are willing to answer each other's requests, how much more God? So, if God is a father who loves us and cares for us, then why wouldn't we be willing, as often as we can, to pray to him? That's what ask-seeking and knocking is. It's prayer. Ask him. Seek God. Knock on his door. If he loves you and he's your father, do it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what this whole thing means. The parable illustrates the principle, right? So let's talk a little bit about asking and seeking and to illustrate this a bit more. What is prayer by asking, seeking, and knocking? Well, first, prayer is asking God, right, for what we need. Jesus isn't only saying that we should ask him, though. He's saying that we should ask him so that we can receive. It's a promise. Right? It's a promise because God's our Father. Fathers give everything that they can to their children. They do their best to give their children everything possible. So does God. So ask Him. He wants to give you good things. Now, this is not a blank check, though. Right? It's not a blank check to ask for whatever we want. Remember the parable. In the parable, the friend asked for bread. And he had to ask for bread. It was his obligation. Right? He asked for something that was a, bit, a real serious need. And that's not to say that we can't ask for little needs. And how do we figure out what needs are versus wants? Well, a really helpful way is actually to read the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is Jesus saying, look, this is what you need from God. It's a summary. It's not complete. It's not the exhaustive. But the Lord's Prayer is a good way for us to say, what do we really need from God? Right? We need to worship his name. We need our daily bread. We need to forgive our neighbors, which we are really not good at doing, right? We need to be free from temptation. Right? These are, this is a summary of, of our needs in a, in a way. So that's, that's asking. Second, prayer is also seeking God. What does that mean? Well, I think in the first place it means prayer is the way in which we, we sort of find God and the way we go to be with him. And the most striking thing about what this is Jesus is saying, look, if you seek God, if you seek being with God, he wants to be found. So in this, it's kind of funny. The promise is bigger than the ask. We, think, we always think about, oh, I want to ask God. I need things from God. But God's saying here, I'm, I'm ready to be found. I'm, I'm there. Find me. Go to me in prayer. I want to listen to you. That's seeking. Because what father doesn't want to spend time with his children? What father wouldn't want to talk to his children and listen to them? The best dads want to do that. The third thing is knocking. And I think this is a way of saying that our prayers should be persistent and, and urgent, in a sense. If you remember the parable, the man went to his neighbor and called out to him. He did not knock. He didn't need to. Because... In, in the time where Jesus lived, the houses weren't the same as our houses, right? 
They lived in little villages. And you could go up to someone's house and you could call out to them from the street, friend, I need bread. And the person inside would hear. Okay? So if Jesus is telling us to knock, what's he really telling us to do? He's telling us to increase our intensity. Because if you call out from the street to your friend and your friend doesn't answer or he doesn't listen, what do you need to do? You've got to increase. You've got to do the next step. You've got to go to his door and you've got to knock on it. Knock. Friend, I need your bread. Bread, I need you. And so you have a, Jesus is saying, ask me for what you need. Seek me and then do it persistently. Do it urgently like, like, it, like it matters. Like prayer matters. You need God. Right? So, and one last thing. This links to the last thing here. In verse 10, when it says, ask, seek, and knock, the original language is knocking and knocking. It's a continual. It's a continuous motion. The English doesn't quite get this across, but this asking, seeking, and knocking is not something we just do once. This is a process by which we live our lives. It's a lifestyle. We are askers, seekers, and knockers as Christians. That's who we are. We pray all the time. It's core to our being as people, as Christians. We want to pray. We have a God whom we are completely dependent upon, and we need him. And because we need everything in our lives from him, we ask him, seek him, and knock at his door. That's what we do. Right? So that's what Jesus is saying here. So let's continue to our third point, or, which is, if earthly fathers give us good gifts, how much more our heavenly father? And let's continue in our passage to, to explain this. Let's read verses 11 through 13. This is the next section, the parable principle illustration again. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And this is Jesus, the first thing Jesus is doing here is he's addressing the biggest objection to prayer. It's the objection that I think a lot of us have to prayer. It goes like this. I prayed for good things from God, and instead he gave me suffering. Or maybe your objection is slightly different, and it goes like this. I prayed to God for good things, and he gave me nothing. I think a lot of us struggle with this. I struggle with this. There are things that I feel I need, and I'm just not getting them. Jesus knows this. He knows that we feel this way. In other words, Jesus is explaining it. He says, when I prayed for a fish or, or for an egg, instead I got a fish or a scorpion. We feel that we get scorpions and snakes from God instead of eggs and bread or fish. I hear you. Now, Jesus' response to this, again, is unusual. Jesus' response to this objection is, look, you have a father. At first, it's like, oh, that's, that's not a response, is it? But I think we've got, to, we've got to really pull on this fatherhood. If God is a father, if he is the best father imaginable, if that is really going to give us a snake, and how do we know that? We know because Jesus said earthly fathers wouldn't do that either. What earthly father would give you a snake or a scorpion? None. So if sinful fathers like us, who are completely corrupted by sin, don't give their, their children bad things, 
then neither will God. That's his, Jesus' response to this objection. And it's not a slam-dunk response, as you may have noticed. And that's because prayer isn't something we can just put into a box and say, well, this is prayer, and this is what's not prayer. Prayer is not transactional. It's not like a contract. It's not like we, we look at prayer and we say, well, if I do this, then I'll get this. It's not like that. Prayer is part of our relationship with God the Father. And that means that prayer is done in faith. It's, I believe that God is my Father. I believe that he wants what's best for me. And so I ask him for what I need inside that paradigm. And so when we suffer, here's the second thing I want to say about, about how we deal with suffering and when we get frustrated that God doesn't answer our prayers. The second thing is this. Sometimes we forget about who caused the sin and suffering in the first place. This is a, a tough, I don't want to be insensitive Remember, in the Garden of Eden, things were perfect. Everybody had enough food. There was no sin. There was no hate. There was no suffering. There was no pain. Everything was right. That's what God wants for us. That's what he wanted. And that's what he'll give to us again in heaven. But it didn't last in the Garden, did it? In the Garden, things fell apart. Sin entered the picture. Man fell. And so, when we see suffering in this world, what we have to say is, oh, wow, that, instead of saying, oh, suffering is so bad, it is bad, and we should, it should horrify us. But there's a, a bigger problem than suffering, a much bigger problem. And the problem isn't suffering, really, but the problem is, is the sin that lives inside of us, the sin that made this world so corrupt. And so the real need in our world, the real need, is not that God releases me from suffering, although that is needed. The real need is that he releases all of us from sin. That's the need. Our real need is the need to have victory over sin, to find someone, some person who can fight sin and defeat it. And the irony is that even though we didn't pray for that and never did, as people here, God has already provided for our greatest need. Like the best father possible, he sacrificed something for his children. He sacrificed something. That's what the best of dads do. They sacrifice for their children. And God the Father sacrificed his only son, Jesus Jesus Christ, he sent him to earth to live with us, to be murdered by us. Jesus Christ was murdered on a cross and he was whipped. There were stakes pounded through his hands. A crown of thorns was put in his head. He suffered for us to defeat the, our real problem, sin. And one of the biggest consequences of that sin was that it drove a wedge between us and the Father. We lived it. There was the time when we were going to live in a world where the Father wanted nothing to do with us because of how sinful we were. That was the real consequence of sin. But because of what Jesus did, he took that wedge out and reunited us with the Father in heaven. 
He allowed us to be called adopted children. Adopted because we can do nothing to deserve our status as children. We have no claim. We're completely dependent on our adoptive Savior and Father for that. And so through Jesus' death, God is now our Father once again. And that is a very, very big thing. It means that he listens to us now. It means he hears us when we cry out. Can you imagine a world? Imagine this for a second. Imagine a world where you were living and you cried out and nobody was there. That's the world without Jesus Christ having dealt with sin. A world with zero hope. Nothing. But because of what God did, because God sent Jesus Christ and he came and he sacrificed, there is a world with hope. And here's the, the best thing Jesus says in this passage. It's all good, but there's one best thing. He says, now that we've been restored to God the Father, God the Father will now send his Holy Spirit to us. That's what he says. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And here's the gospel again. Sinful human beings were completely corrupted. We can't do anything right. The fall was total. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, God the Father is willing to send his own spirit to us. Why? Because without it, we could do nothing. And with the Holy Spirit, there's this process that's starting inside each one of us that's turning us towards God every bit, more every day. And prayer is part of that process. And when we pray to God, we, the biggest thing we need to ask for is the Holy Spirit. Because it's the only thing, frankly, that can turn us away from our sin into God. Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago so that he could send the Spirit to change us, to make us more like God every single day. What a magnificent gift. And tell me, there's, it's a gift that we can't get any other way than asking. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't do nothing. The only thing we can do is just say, God, please send me the Holy Spirit. Please change me. And that's why pr here we get to the real essence of prayer. Prayer is the admission in the first place that everything we need comes from God. Every good thing we need comes straight from God. And not praying is the admission that we can do some things on our own that we don't need God for everything. This is the real heart and soul of prayer. Prayer is all about, God, I have nothing. I am nothing. I'm sinful. I've made a mess. God, help me. Send your spirit. Change me. Because he's the one who can. So why wouldn't you ask? So let's go back to the original question to finish. Is prayer worthwhile? Should Grace Family have four prayer groups? Yes. Not because those prayer groups are like signing a contract where, well, if we have four, then God will do extra and extra, extra. No. But because our God loves us and we need him for every single thing. And the more we acknowledge that, the more we will be at peace in this life. And the truth is, the more we ask of God, the more he'll be with us. The more he'll work with us the more he'll send his spirit to change us. It's real. It's not a myth. Jesus says right here, if the Father in heaven is willing to sacrifice his own son for us and give us his only Holy Spirit, 
How much more then should we be willing to talk to him? How much more would he be willing to listen to us when we pray to him? If that's the kind of God you and I have, what a father. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you at the end of this sermon. Once again, Lord, we've had a small peek at your glory of how mighty and glorious a God you are and how small we are. But Lord, regardless of how small we are and how mighty you are, you've provided a way forward for us to live in the shadow of your greatness, to enjoy you, to love you, not because we can, but because through your Holy Spirit we can. What a gift. What an incredible gospel. If there, there ain't no greater news. And so we praise your name for such a gospel. Amen.